This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to yet another edition of America Change Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Begays, just back from Atlanta, Georgia, Fulton County, Georgia. Why? Well, I was chasing down Rudy Giuliani. The former president's one-time personal attorney. He was disbarred, so I don't, I don't, you know, I don't refer to him as the former president's current personal attorney. Plus, Rudy Giuliani, formerly America's mayor because of his time as mayor in New York City, led that city through 9-11. Seems like eons ago, frankly. Given the kind of heat Rudy Giuliani is getting in investigation after investigation, he is a target of that investigation in Fulton County, Georgia. Just to refresh your memory, that is the investigation where former President Trump, when he was president, called the Secretary of State shortly after the election and said, hey, could you just find 11,000, I think it was 780 votes. So he was recorded saying that to the Secretary of State. That and other statements that Rudy Giuliani made about fraud in the Georgia election, which were false, all of that sparked an investigation. And now, fast forward, Rudy Giuliani is a target of that investigation, and he was in Georgia this past week in Atlanta to testify before a special grand jury. So I was there for CBS News, CBS Evening News, CBS Morning, to cover Rudy Giuliani showing up at court. And what is interesting about that case is, well, there's several things that were interesting, but one of the things that I found interesting was Giuliani's effort not to show up and testify. He went to court. He tried to fight it. And one of the arguments that he and his attorney made was that the former mayor of New York City couldn't travel because he had had a medical procedure and he couldn't go anywhere. So he couldn't fly down to Atlanta. But the DA, Fonnie Willis, did some investigating and found out that while Giuliani and his attorney were saying that the former mayor could not travel to testify, the former mayor had actually bought some tickets to Europe. So he was going to fly to Europe. But uh, according to the DA's investigation, he was going to fly to Europe, but he couldn't make it to Atlanta. So anyway, the judge ruled against him. And Fonnie Willis said, hey, you get here by bus, 
you could take the train, or you can walk. I don't care how you get here, get here. So when I was in Atlanta and Rudy Giuliani showed up, the question I asked him on camera was, so how'd you get here? And he said, I can tell you one thing, I didn't walk. So that was part of my interaction with Rudy Giuliani, which that's the case to watch. All joking aside, that is the case to watch. And here's why. That's the case that is sort of flying under the radar, but there is so much evidence in that case. So much evidence of Rudy Giuliani and others seeming to work to cause some sort of constitutional crisis in the state of Georgia by overturning the election results. You have the the phone call to the Secretary of State that the former president made. You have the phone call that Lindsey Graham, Republican senator from South Carolina, made. I think he made a couple. He's now fighting because he doesn't want to testify before that special grand jury. But chances are pretty good that he's going to have to testify. And I say that that is a, a, probably the, the case that poses the most imminent legal jeopardy to the former president, because it is pretty clear what Fonnie Willis is doing, how she is working that case and lining people up, Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, other people in the former president's orbit that could lead to the former president. So that is a case you need to watch. But that's not what we're going to talk about here today. I know I've spent five minutes talking about that, but that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about all these cases in one way or another, because it is it is the case that involves the search of Mar-a-Lago that, well, frankly, FBI agents are concerned about their safety. FBI employees. Why? Because after that search of Mar-a-Lago, the former president put out this statement calling it a raid, a siege, occupied Mar-a-Lago. He used these highly charged phrases, clearly trying to stir up his supporters, turn them against the FBI. And now the FBI is seeing unprecedented threats. And you had a guy in Ohio try to attack the FBI field office in Cincinnati, he was shot and killed. Some people right now are calling for the FBI to be defunded, dismantle the FBI. You hear those statements too. So this interview, this exclusive interview with Brian O'Hare, the president of the FBI Agents Association, is timely. Brian, thanks for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. All right. So this, you know, I I cover the FBI. I have uh, friends who have been in the FBI. This is a tough time for the FBI, isn't it? Well, we're facing challenges uh, like we haven't in the past. Uh, that's just part of the job. Unfortunately, it's more a part of the job now than it has been. There are people politicians who are saying defund the FBI, or they say destroy the FBI. How are 
agents, employees of the FBI responding to, to what they are hearing right now? First, let me respond to the general principle of defunding law enforcement. Uh, I think we've already discovered that defunding state and local law enforcement is a failed endeavor. Uh, I don't see that working out well for any federal agency either. Uh, I cannot think of a single profession in this country that would do better with less money. Uh, I've never heard people call for the defunding of um, medical schools or the defunding of education or the defunding of pilot training. None of these worthy endeavors are made better through a defunding mindset or approach. Are are you surprised that we're even having this conversation right now? You know, unfortunately, I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed. I think uh, almost everything is viewed through a political lens and for an organization that prides itself on not being political, it's a real challenge. Uh, I don't think that there is any action that the FBI can take without some viewing it as political. And when it's not political, and it is not, um, it makes for a real challenge for all of us. Can, can you understand why former President Trump would be attacking the FBI right now? Well, I don't think it's wise for me to address why any individual or a group or a movement would attack the FBI. I, I will speak to the calls uh, for violence as being reprehensible, and those calls have to be met uh, by leaders in this country who state unequivocally that we can't have an environment that uh, considers attacking law enforcement as an option. But some of these lawmakers in the past, they've claimed to support law enforcement. But now they are on the record making these very dangerous statements about the FBI. How, how do you is the president of the FBI Agents Association and a special agent. How do you react to those politicians who in the past have said, I support law enforcement, but right now are are making these very incendiary comments? I think it's important to have oversight um, for all law enforcement at appropriate levels. And uh, that is a process that is separate and apart from calls for violence. The calls for violence have to stop. I mean, we watched that unfold during the unrest a couple of years ago. And the attacks on law enforcement, uh, the ambush of law enforcement officers across the country was reprehensible and should have been, um, leaders should have spoken out against that when that was going on. And the same is true today. No matter your view of the effectiveness of the FBI or the correctness of our actions, the threats to law enforcement have to be done away with. There's just no place for that in the uh, public discourse. The FBI Agents Association doesn't often grant interviews. Special agents in general, they don't often talk to media. Why did you want to talk to us? 
right now? Why why is this important to you? Well, threats against my brothers and sisters in the FBI are of great concern. And we know from the history of various threat streams, uh, there is more or less credibility from one, one threat to the next. But we've already seen one example of an individual willing to take on and attack the FBI, and it had horrible consequences. Uh, the thought that others in the FBI might remain at risk is worth talking out about. We need to talk it through. We need to have leaders denounce the calls for violence. And if getting on to a radio show will help move the needle, I'm happy to do that. What should, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people out there, especially the ones who are perhaps most concerning in terms of threats to law enforcement in general, they don't know the difference between a police officer or state police or the FBI. I mean, what, what we're seeing out there is law enforcement in general is being targeted. You referred to that case in Cincinnati with Ricky Schiffer. It was state police who responded, local police, FBI. Um, what, how do you describe the, you know, what we're hearing is that the, the threats are off the charts right now to the FBI, to law enforcement. Is that what you're seeing? So we've seen threats that were off the charts over the last several years. Uh, they were primarily directed at local law enforcement a couple of years ago, and that seems to have subsided to some degree. And today that threat is um, more pronounced with respect to the FBI. I have the benefit of having been a local police officer in Texas for 13 years. Uh, you know, the, the difference between the work that we do and local law enforcement is sometimes not discernible and sometimes it's very different. Uh, we work drug cases uh, similar to the drug cases that might be worked by state and local partners. Uh, we make arrests on bank robberies just like our state and local partners. Uh, we're knocking on the doors of child pornography subjects just like state and locals. And all of those similar experiences carry the same risks. And we understand the risks associated with that type of law enforcement. What we're seeing today and what state and locals have seen over the past couple of years is a targeting of law enforcement solely because of the individual's employment with a law enforcement agency. And that's the kind of thing that has to go away. I mean, we all want to hire the best and the brightest in the FBI. Your local police departments want to hire the best and brightest. Your state police want to hire the best and brightest. The best and brightest are considering today whether or not they would like to be a target simply because they're entering the law enforcement profession. Is, you know, I, I think people nowadays have this notion. That FBI agents work for Democrats or they work for Republicans. How do you dispel that notion? You know, I've been working for the FBI for 23 years. That's across several administrations. Uh, I get one vote every four years. That's all I get. That's the only say I have. Uh, sometimes that vote 
uh, is a winner and sometimes it's not. But we work for whoever uh, the American people, we work for the causes that the American people need us to focus on, regardless of what administration, regardless of politics, it, it just doesn't matter to us. Uh, you know, we, we come across victims every single day in our work. That's who we're working for. We're working to protect victims. We're working to make victims whole. We're working to prevent victimization. And those individuals who can be identified as victims of federal violations are not concerned about politics. They're concerned about the experience that they've just endured. They're concerned about what they almost had happen. And, and those are the people that we're going to continue to focus on going forward. You took an oath, didn't you? To the Constitution of the United States to protect and serve. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's disappointing. When you, you see people react to law enforcement, I think in this way. I think it's fair and, you know, I, I obviously cover law enforcement and I think in every profession there are bad apples that you have to weed out. But I think sometimes people forget as a whole, if you, if you look at law enforcement, if you look at the, the work of the FBI, the FBI has intelligence responsibilities. The FBI has criminal justice responsibilities. Uh, the FBI has a broad portfolio. And when it comes to keeping America safe, you know, I don't think I'm uh, being biased if I say we need an FBI. We need a strong FBI with the threats that are out there, counterintelligence threats currently. Um, this is a time when you need a strong FBI. But what we're seeing is this effort to diminish the FBI. That's what I think we're seeing. Um, how, how are the average rank and file reacting to some of the words that were frankly used by the former president? that Mar-a-Lago was occupied, it was raided. How do you respond to words like that? So I'm going to take this opportunity to not respond to specific comments that are made by uh, any specific individuals. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, why not? Well, because I think I can speak to a broader message that agents now are hearing uh, a variety of threats and uh, accusations made uh, from all corners. And those things are distractions for some uh, ignored by others. Uh, I mean, we have people going out and doing the job every single day. The, the agent who was working on his drug case three weeks ago is working on that same drug case today. The agent who was looking for a missing child three weeks ago is still looking for that child today. The work continues. Now, is it a distraction that is better put to the sidelines? Yes, if it would if it would cease to occur, particularly the threats, that would be greatly appreciated. There's nothing gained through the threats that are being made uh, today, last week, 
or even threats that have, have come our way periodically over the years. It's unnecessary and distracting. The identity of some of the agents involved in that operation were revealed. How damaging can that kind of thing be? Well, I think we have to be concerned that some who are watching events unfold may not recognize uh, the limits of rhetoric. Uh, I, I worry that some may not have the capacity to understand the inappropriateness of acting out in a violent way. Uh, and those people may have no connection whatsoever to uh, the individuals or groups uh, spewing the violent rhetoric. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that makes it a challenge. Uh, we have a connected world today, and there's a lot of places people can go for information. There's a lot of threads of information through various formats. Uh, people are listening that you know have never had any contact with the people who are speaking. And I worry that someone uh, will make uh, a poor decision and decide to act on some of that rhetoric. The FBI has, you know, like a lot of institutions in this country, it has a history. And I know that former FBI director, who is obviously controversial in some circles, James Comey, and I believe FBI Director Ray has continued this uh, program with the new recruits who, co who come in of learning about the history of the FBI, its surveillance of black leaders, things like that. Um, people out there might say, you know, I don't trust the FBI. I don't trust what they do. They're out to get me. How do you respond to people like that? What do you say to them? Well, a couple of things. The, the FBI throughout its history has been run by human beings. And uh, in the course of our history, we have certainly made poor decisions from time to time. Uh, I have watched uh, Director Ray ensure that we learn from recent mistakes, uh, the handling of uh, a number of cases and interactions and the entire workforce has uh, been trained on how not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, I, you know, I, I think that we're best judged by the work we do today. Uh, we've been judged by the work we did 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. But today's FBI is not the FBI of 10 years ago or 50 years ago. All we can do today is the best based on understanding our past mistakes and working to do a much better job. You have a position, obviously, of responsibility within the FBI Agents Association. You're the president. Uh, people look, look up to you. They look to you for leadership. Why do you do what you do? Why do you care about the FBI the way you obviously do? Uh, leading this organization has given me a great opportunity to do something that I couldn't do uh, prior uh, in my FBI career. I am focused on taking care of my brothers and sisters, special agents across the FBI, who do their damnedest 
to look out for the American people. And from time to time, they need help with one thing or another. And serving them has been a wonderful honor and a great way to finish up my career. Brian O'Hare, special agent, but also president of the FBI Association Agent, the FBI Agents Association. Thanks for coming on your program. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jeff. Joining us now is Kristen Johansson, the crime and justice reporter for KYW News Radio in Philadelphia. Kristen, thanks for being with us. Oh, of course. All right. So what is going on in Philly? Okay. I'm looking through these numbers. 1,400 people have been shot this year in Philadelphia. Hundreds of them fatally. That's a higher toll than in much bigger New York City or Los Angeles. So what is going on in the city of of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love? Yeah, Jeff, this is actually our third year in a row where we're just hovering above that 500 number continuously. Last year was actually the year that we hit that highest number of homicide victims we've ever had in Philadelphia. And that was 562. And you know, often in tweets and whatnot, I remind people that this is 562 families affected because it's not just these numbers that we push out all the time, that this is actually people that are affected by this on an everyday basis. Just, uh, you know, when you sit in court um, and you're going through these prelims and listening, it's just this trauma that has kind of taken over the city. Uh, You know, just actually this morning, I was looking at some of the police notes and we had six teenagers shot overnight. All of the shooting victims were teenagers overnight. There was a birthday party where four people were shot in North Philadelphia. There was um, an 18-year-old who was shot in the neck and killed. Um, And there was another teenager who was also shot, uh, but is expected to physically recover from that. Um, But really, we're just, the guns is obviously the thing that comes up in our city leaders' words all the time. Um, But the police have taken off more guns off the street um, than ever before. Last year, they took off, they took about 6,000 guns off the street. Um, But it's not doing anything to reduce the violence. Mm. What do you, do you, do you think, uh, you know, across the country, we're seeing police departments who are undermanned. They don't have the resources, the, the people that they need right now. Police departments are having a hard time recruiting. Uh, you know, there was this effort in some cities to, you know, cut back on funding to police departments. So w- what is the problem in Philly? There, we're facing the same problem, um, and they've been trying to push for classes um, for more people to, to come and join recruits, and they're pushing these classes of preparation types of classes. So if you maybe can't make the physical you know, number of push-ups or something, you can come to this training class. They're just doing everything they can to really try and recruit. But obviously the rhetoric, uh, especially since George Floyd um, and much of police misconduct has come to light, uh, you know, it, police, people don't want to become police officers. 
Um, I also know that here in Philadelphia, we have a lot of police officers who are burnt out, whether that's from the pandemic or um, the crime and the violence that they've seen um, or just being older. It's probably a combination of everything. Uh, They, you know, we have a police commissioner who really is trying to push for that community police officer relationship in different neighborhood events here. Um, But that's not necessarily the way that old policing was. Um, They are struggling to get their numbers up. They really, it's been, they're trying to, there was a whole kind of effort. City council had said that the police officers or anybody who wants to become a, a Philadelphia police officer needs to have residency in Philadelphia. Uh, because that has been such an issue, they're kind of loosening the restrictions on that because they need people to become police officers. So uh, they're giving them, you know, some wiggle room to become Philadelphia police officers. Um, but a lot of it too is that the city is just very dangerous right now, and it's a scary time to be a Philadelphia police officer. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of low morale. I'm sure you've heard that too in other cities, but low morale in the city and um, quite a few are retiring, and they're just not hiring as many as, as they really need to. And uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to inject politics into this conversation, but with the city of Philadelphia, isn't there uh, this discussion about whether progressive politics have led to this rise in crime? There is that discussion. And just coming off of the discussion about the police officers, a lot of the cops that I talk to do not feel supported by the district attorney. Our district attorney here is Larry Krasner. Uh, You know, we go to press conferences now about uh, violence that has happened throughout the city. But many of the time, you know, when he started as district attorney, a lot of times he would have press conferences about every time a police officer was arrested. That's when they would have press conferences. Uh, there is tension between the police commissioner and the district attorney. Everybody sees it. I mean, the neighbors see it, the community sees it, let alone just the media seeing it. Uh, There is this kind of disconnect between the two, and they have to really work together. Now, the actual prosecutors that work in the district attorney's office and the police officers on the ground, the detectives, they work, at least that I've seen, especially in homicide, they work very well together, very closely together. Uh, But you can see kind of the tension because, you know, when even yesterday there was a there was a press conference with all the city leaders and there was the sign that was the district attorney's office sign, even though the police commissioner was there, the mayor was there. So you can see the disconnect. They walked in separately. These are things that people notice, um, you know, here. And there's been, you know. I know studies done about deprosecution policies, about progressive policies, um, and a district attorney who used to work in an, in an outside county had said to me, you know, you can do kind of these deprosecution policies, this progressive, you know, where you're not charging things like marijuana, theft, et cetera, but you can't do them in a city that's as poor as Philadelphia, the largest, poorest city in, in the country. Um, and so that has really become a topic conversation. Uh, you know, the poverty level here in Philadelphia, there are a lot of small businesses that don't feel supported either. They're, you know, they'll get robbed or, or something will happen. And 
there's, you know, levels and thresholds that it's, I think now about $500 or more, they're not going to prosecute. And so there's kind of a free for all that that can happen. Um, and one day personally, I witnessed three retail thefts and spoke to the managers kind of after that, like how, how, how is there, you know, why aren't the police coming? And they say, well, they've come before in the past, but once they come, they fill out the report, nothing happens. So now they don't come anymore. Um, it's not supposed to happen that way, but, um, it's playing a role somewhere. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to pinpoint because this criminologist says that, and then this criminologist says that. Um, but the police commissioner herself has said that there's a revolving door at the courthouse that they've noticed. And, um, she wants to see more people and offenders held accountable. The district attorney on the other side says the police aren't arresting who they need to arrest and they need you know, a, a bigger lab to do work and get more evidence and, you know, that their clearance rate is low and they need to work on that. So it's a lot of kind of infighting politics. But the thing is, Jeff, is that the people in the neighborhoods and in the community don't care. They want to feel safe. They want to be safe. And they just want somebody to step up and be a leader in this city. I look at covering this beat in much the same way. You know, I... I try not to pay as close attention to the numbers because I think about the people behind the numbers. And, and you said something similar when we started this conversation. Uh, and then as, as you were discussing some of the tension between police and the DA, I was just thinking, you know, I, I've worked in a lot of different cities and I've covered law enforcement. I've covered prosecutors and it's really never a good thing if the prosecutor and the police aren't on the same page. Yeah, I mean, and it's being noticed by people here. And I think that's the biggest thing is that whether it's being noticed by the, you know, that small portion of the people here who are committing a large portion of the crime, um, but really just even the citizens, there's a lot of kind of these little things that happen where, you know, a couple times now we've had a press conference call by the district attorney's office and then to kind of like overshadow the city's press conference or the city when it, it's like back and forth, you know, a little bit. And instead of just holding back in the day of Commissioner Ramsey, who I know, you know, uh, you know, and Mayor Nutter, and they would all get together and have a press conference, whether it was something like a child was shot or uh, you know, a police officer or something where many people were shot, they would be standing there together. And that's seen, that's, that's not seen, I should say here. That's, we don't see that. We see kind of this, you know, this entity is holding a Zoom press conference every two weeks. And then this one's holding this other one at some church out here. And there's a lot of disconnect and it's being felt in the community. Uh, um, and it's hard to, you know, as you know, Jeff, it's hard to talk about you know, politically, because people just think you're inserting your opinion. But really, these are just observations of not just what we in the media see here in Philadelphia, but also what the community sees, what the neighbors see, and then all of the other parts and resources, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, the police, you know, the advocates, uh, the defense, you know, the, the, um, the defense association, uh, the Defenders Association, I, I should say, this is kind of all being seen by everybody that there is a lack of leadership here. 
what also struck me was that store owner that you talked to who was just so used to things walking out of his store. Um, that is that is something that I think sticks with me because you, you think about how much money they can lose if they are repeated targets of shoplifting. That kind of thing adds up for these small business owners. Um, and so that, that is a story that really stood out for me, Kristen. What, tell me about, so I was looking at, I was looking at your bio. So you, you cover crime and justice. Uh, how long have you done that in Philly? Um, everything's awash with, uh, COVID. Um, about five or six years now, um, I took over for my predecessor, Tony Hansen, um, who was always in court. And um, I also he was a mentor. Well, Hunter was a mentor to me, um, who was a longtime CBS reporter here in Philadelphia. And um, so it's been about five or six years. It actually started with the trial of Seth Williams, who was our former district attorney, who was then convicted of several corruption and bribery charges. That's when I started. Kristen Johansson, thanks for your time. I've done a few stories on ghost guns and how police across the country are seeing them connected to more and more crimes. Well, CBS News has done extensive reporting as an organization on ghost guns. As this very important deadline approaches next week, what it will require, and we're going to get into this with my next guest, but what this will require is that these ghost guns that are made at home have serial numbers. It is a big step for law enforcement as they try to, you know, catch up to people who use these these ghost guns in crimes. My next guest is has done a lot of the legwork for CBS News and stations. He's Stephen Stock, national investigative correspondent with our Innovation Lab. Stephen, thanks for your time. You bet, Jeff. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so before we get into ghost guns, let's talk about the Innovation Lab and what CBS is doing. Sure. It's a pretty exciting uh, concept. We're essentially reaching all our owned and operated stations throughout the United States and, and serving as a bridge between you there at the network and all the owned and operated stations trying to bring and to uncover stories that matter, stories that are important to communities holding the powerful accountable and bridge the gap between the local communities and the network, the, the United States, so to speak. And so we're really excited. We've got a team of about uh, 15 people already on board and we're adding another um, half dozen or so. And uh, we're going to be covering all kinds of topics that are of interest and of import to our communities throughout the United States. And that's why I wanted you to come on the program. I think, you know, is, is someone who has worked in local news, Oh, gosh, I lost count, I think. Over 25 years. 
I think this is really good. It's in-depth reporting. And yeah, okay, I work for CBS News. I get paid by CBS News Viacom. So yeah, I, all right, you can, I'll admit it, I'm biased when it comes to, to what we do in terms of news coverage. But this is important stuff because, uh, and I tell this to anybody who's, who is interested in news, a large percentage of the population still relies, and this is coming from a network news guy, still relies on their local news for the information that they need. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and this ghost gun investigation that you guys did is really good stuff. Tell us tell us what you did. Well, we got a tip from, I have several sources uh, like you do in the Justice Department throughout the United States. And um, in my career, I've been doing this for some 40 years, mostly in local television. They told me that um, we've got this new rule coming up, as you mentioned, uh, that takes effect August 24th. For the first time, more or less, from a national federal perspective, there's some states, uh, about a dozen of them, that have tried to address the ghost gun issue over the years. But there really needs to be a comprehensive strategy, according to my sources. Anyway, we got this rule coming up. It's going to change the landscape for ghost guns. Um, as you say, privately made firearms is the technical term, or unserialized gun parts. But it's going to change the landscape. But in the meantime, as we're getting ready for this, my sources say, watch out. There are a lot of um, companies, websites who have these unserialized parts and they're looking to dump them onto the, onto the American public. And that's what's happening because if you obtain those parts between now and next Wednesday, you will not have to, it'll be grandfathered. You won't have to put a serial number on it. Uh, and soon as Wednesday comes along, as you mentioned, every part, every significant part for a gun has to have a serial number on it. You have to pass a background check like you do in many states to buy a fully uh, workable gun. And so there is this rush to unload their inventory, as one ATF special agent in charge put it out of Philadelphia. He, he says he's seeing ghost guns flooding the streets. So the title of our project, Jeff, as you well know, is called Fire Sale. There's a fire sale going on right now. And I, in our previous segment, talked about some of the issues that police are seeing on the streets of Philadelphia, these shootings, just an incredible amount of firearm-related crimes that, you know, Philadelphia in that respect rivals Los Angeles and New York City, bigger cities. So this this ghost gun issue, it, it's contributing to the violence that we're seeing in a lot of cities. Isn't that right, Stephen? And in fact, go through some of the numbers, the seizures that are that are up in terms of the, the, the ghost guns that law enforcement is taking off the streets in some of these cities uh, year over year. You're, you're absolutely right, Jeff. And then talking to some of, again, other ATF sources that I've talked to all across the country, there are some cities, some regions where they're finding as many as 50% of all violent crime guns recovered from the scene are ghost guns. And less than 1% of those are traceable, according to the ATF. So it's a serious problem. It's it's as as one ATF agent put it <laughs> that this is what the bad guys, the criminals, they want guns like this because you can fire off a bunch of rounds, drop the gun, and as long as you're not leaving a fingerprint, there's no way to trace it back to you. And so they are in high demand. You you mentioned Philadelphia. We got numbers from the Philadelphia Police Department and Pennsylvania State Police that show 
they have see, seen a 501% increase in just the last two years in the number of ghost guns flooding the streets. Those are guns they've seized. That, these aren't guns that they don't know about. They're guns they know about. In New York City, 1,447, I'll say it again, 1,500% increase in the number of ghost guns recovered there in the last two years. And they actually have laws on the books that, that regulate ghost guns. And yet they're seeing this astronomical jump in the number of ghost guns just in the last two years. So uh, we can, Los Angeles, you mentioned that, up 400% LAPD. I talked to the LA uh, County Sheriff, very concerned about it. His officers came under fire from uh, an AK-47 that was a ghost gun. They finally returned the fire, went and 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 went to the scene where the where the guy was shooting at them there was a gun, no guy, and no serial number, no way to trace to find out who was involved. They're really scared about this because not only are police at risk, the community, people living in these communities are at risk. And oftentimes there's no way to solve the crime. Yeah, and they are actually, and this is a story that um, that I have been meaning to do for CBS News, and um, I'm going to... I'm going to say this out loud, and I'm sure the competition, NBC and ABC, might get some ideas. But, you know, this is the kind of story that it's okay if there's a lot of coverage of it because, all right, here's the story, Stephen. I, I am hearing about a lot of school incidents involving ghost guns. For example, there was this case in suburban D.C., uh, it's actually more specifically in Maryland, but a kid made a, a ghost gun, brought it to school, and shot someone. And it's happening in other school districts across the country. You know, so what we're talking about here with these ghost guns is that they're being used in shootings on the streets, but also in schools. That's exactly right. And I'll, I'll take you one more, um, uh, one more level. And I know you're really tied into the intelligence community uh, here in America, and you have great sources in the justice and counterintelligence. But I obtained a, a, a document from a Joint Terrorism Task Force that was sent out nationally, not for public use. It's not classified. In fact, it's, it's very clear it's not classified. But it essentially says terrorism groups are now being attracted to these guns. Why? Because you can go shoot up a courthouse or you can go disrupt a, a, a rally or something, drop the gun and it's not traced to you. And they've actually put out a warning that they are seeing indications. This is from the Justice and DHS, Department of Homeland Security. They are seeing indications of domestic terrorism groups intentionally seeking out these gun kits and making ghost guns. I had another agent say in the Central Valley of California, he walked into a house and in the back, they were literally putting out as many as 100 guns a day. Those, those are not hobbyists, Jeff. I think we can make that assumption. If you're putting out 100 guns a day, you're trying to sell them on the street. Yeah, and as, as you were saying, I was thinking back. Remember that case... I don't know, four or five years ago about the guy who was going to release the information on, on how to build 
a 3D gun. Yeah, right, right. This all started with him, basically, right? Isn't that where this started? <laughs> and, and you know what my sources are telling me is they're worried that they'll go back to that 3D printing because right now you don't need to do that. And and you you know you know about firearms, Jeff, and anybody listening here probably knows there's a lot of high speed velocity, a lot of fire, a lot of a lot of uh, torque when you're firing a gun, and so a lot of these 3D printed guns fall apart when you actually try to fire them. Right now, you don't need that. You just get pieces of metal that you can buy legally. In fact, we did it over the internet. We got an 80% lower for an AR-15 within a couple of days. We just gave our credit card name, no background check, no nothing. Totally legal. You can do that at least for the next uh, couple of days until next week. Um, there is a real concern that, that the, the the bad guys have realized this is a way around gun laws. They can get these guns without passing a background check or having to have a straw purchase. So they may just go back to printing them on 3D printers and such. And so you're right. There's a real concern. They're, they're going to find a way to get these guns that are untraceable. All right, Stephen. And tell, tell the listeners... You know, you check your local listings. What do you what do you do? You can obviously go online, right? Yep, cbsnews.com. The story's there on the front page. It's been playing all the last couple of days all over the major CBS stations wherever you live. So uh, tune into your CBS local news and you should be able to see it or go cbsnews.com on the network website. It's right there. All right. Stephen Stock, National Investigative Correspondent. Innovation Lab, CBS News and Stations. Thank you, Stephen. Jeff, thanks. It's been a pleasure. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. You can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. Don't forget, for now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.